Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Our strategic environment has deteriorated. As the Prime Minister has said, it's, it's really the greatest strategic change since World War II. We're now in the Indo-Pacific and we find ourselves at the epicentre of a new age of strategic competition and great power competition between the US and China. What we do in government now really matters more consequentially than at any time that I've experienced. And of course, all the challenges we're facing now are compounded by the global pandemic. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And those comments you just heard were made by Caroline Miller, the Deputy Secretary for National Security from our Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Our Head of College, Professor Rory Medcalf, spoke to Caroline on securing Australia in an age of disruption as part of the National Security College's 10th anniversary speaker series. Caroline's role with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet covers national security, defence, intelligence and international policy. For our international audience that may not be too familiar with the structure of Australia's national security community, Caroline's role could otherwise be known as Australia's National Security Coordinator. Carolyn has worked in many roles across the national security and policy community, such as Australia's ambassador to the United Nations, deputy head of mission at the Australian Embassy in Washington, as well as the Chargé d'Affaires in Belgium, covering, among other responsibilities, Australia's representation to the EU and NATO. Carolyn has also acted as the senior analyst for the Americas at the then Office of National Assessments, and has held roles related to disarmament, people smuggling, and international security. In this episode, Roy chats to Caroline about Australia's regional and global threat landscapes and her role as a leading woman in national security policy making. Let's hear that discussion right now. First, I want to welcome you to the studio and, uh, and really ask you uh, an opening question, and that is, in your career as a leading Australian policymaker, as a diplomat, uh, going back into the 20th century, <laughs> how have you seen Australia's national security environment change? Well, thank you very much, Rory. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, and can I just first say, though, um, thank you for the work that you do in leading the National Security College, uh, very much in partnership with government, as you mentioned, and your executive development program in particular, I think has been very valuable for, for many of my colleagues. And of course, I've been very happy to, to address some of your courses. 
But look, the first thing I would say is I don't think in, in my career, and it's been growing for a while, uh, and I, that there's ever been a more consequential time for an Australian uh, official to work in, in international security and national security. Um, we are living in a time of disruption, as you say. Uh, our strategic environment has deteriorated. Um, as, as, as the Prime Minister has said, it's, it's really the greatest strategic change since World War II. Um, and we, we're now in the Indo-Pacific. We find ourselves at the epicentre of a new age of strategic competition and great power competition between the US and China. It's a very different environment from the one in which I forged the early part of my career. Um, other things, other big factors, of course, are the enormous technological change in the digital age. We have threat vectors through cyber and other means that are challenging non-traditional parts of the of our national security um, uh, environment. It's very different from from those earlier days. I think another another factor I'd point to is the um, a, a sort of a lack of confidence in some of the multilateral parts of our system, a bit of an erosion of confidence in the rules-based order, and the challenges it's facing from some countries that don't really share the purposes for which these institutions were established in the first place. So what we do in government now really matters more, more consequentially than at any time that I've experienced. And of course, all the challenges we're facing now are compounded by the, the global pandemic. We'll come back to a few of those issues and I particularly want towards the end of the conversation to go to uh, really what motivates people like you to do what you do. I mean, what are the incentives? What are the, what are the motivations uh, mm-hmm. to, to grapple with these issues every day? Um, maybe before we do that, it would be good to hear a few reflections on uh, really how your own career has evolved sure. on these issues. I mean, mm. in many ways, uh, you're playing a key convening role in national security policy making. But you came at this really through uh, diplomacy and foreign policy and international security That's for right. many years. So I'd love to hear a few thoughts on how, on, on your personal journey, if, if you'd like. Well, sure. Look, when I first started working on national security, it was back in the late 80s. Uh, and of course, that was a time of enormous optimism at the end of the Cold War. Um, I was very lucky to be posted to Washington. Uh, and it was a it was a very exciting era. There was that sense of triumph the West has won. Uh, you know, Western democracy has, liberal democracy has triumphed. And you'll probably remember Francis Fukuyama and his uh, famous 1989 essay on the end of history. Um, and I, I should say that that was published in a, in a journal called The National Interest in Washington, uh, which was edited by an Australian, Owen Harris, course, that you may yeah. recall. No. And I remember Owen coming to dinner one night and feeling very pleased he'd managed to publish such a seminal piece that had such enormous reach and influence at the time. Of course, you know, things have moved on. Um, but there was this very optimistic sense that we were now being able to reap a peace dividend, that the UN could play the role in global security it always, you know, was always there for. Um, and I, I can remember in Washington that, that, that sort of sense of power and excitement, and it was very much the era of the lobbyists and the power breakfasts and the braces and all of that. Um, and then, you know, a few years later, worked very closely on all the big uh, non-proliferation and disarmament this is challenges. This the early 1990s. Moving into the early 1990s, exactly. Um, And because of the end of the Cold War, we had an international security environment which made it possible for those things finally to start happening. So to be an Australian diplomat at that time was terribly exciting. And we all loved it. We were extremely motivated. Uh, And your former Chancellor, Gareth Evans, who then the Foreign Minister, really drove a lot of this internationally. And Australia really played an outsized role. Um, Some of the big issues we worked on in those days, of course, were the, the chemical weapons, 
Nations Convention, the Mine Ban Convention, uh, supporting Gareth and his role as as chairman of the Canberra Commission on the Elimination of Nuclear Weapons, um, the, the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, and one in which I was very involved, which was the indefinite extension of the NPT, and doing a lot of work on on nuclear weapons uh, programs of concern around the world. That was a different era in a way. I mean, there was a certain a certain optimism there, there really in the was. 90s. Yeah. I, I joined Foreign Affairs myself in, in that phase mm-hmm. and I think came in at the very tail end of mm-hmm. that. Um, we're moving to a different environment now. So it'll be interesting to know how how that journey progressed for you or, th- or for your worldview, if you like, mm-hmm. as a policymaker from the, um, the, that moment, if you like, after the Cold War through, through to the present day yeah. and through to the the grim challenges we face Well, now. indeed. I mean, I think that, that that sort of era, if you like, um, came to a very rude finish with the terrible uh, 9-11 attacks in the United States. Mm. Uh, and and having just been posted in New York at that time, I think when we got back and this happened just after we returned, we all felt it very viscerally. And you really entered then a sort of a post-9-11 decade where the whole sort of national security apparatus pivoted very largely towards mm. counterterrorism. Um, and we had, you know, of course, the Bali bombings in, in, in Indonesia, the attack on the Australian embassy in Jakarta, the, the sort of the, our defence force pivoted into an expeditionary force going to Iraq and and uh, and so on, and Afghanistan, working very closely with the United States and the coalition. So it's a we we shifted from that sort of earlier optimism, if you like, at the end of the Cold War and that enormous drive to finally get through all these things we thought you know the, the UN and the multilateral system was there to do, and sort of peace to this very challenging time on the on, in terms of counterterrorism. And, and all of this was, I guess, in a way, or I, I guess for Australia, kind of a, kind of an apprenticeship to dealing with the complexities that we deal with in the world today. Um, what I might do is is really pivot from, I guess, those formative phases mm. of your career, uh, and I hope later on we can talk a little bit about what formative phases of a career look like in, in uh, security these days. Mm. Um, and it wasn't that long ago, of course, but but looking at the complexity of the issues that we face now. So you've, uh, from a career that has principally been in, in international security, mm-hmm. uh, for the past two years, you've you've been in this key role Absolutely. in the Department of Prime Minister and mm-hmm. Cabinet. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at national security in the way, really, I guess, in a real policy sense, in the way that intellectually we try to look at it here at the National mm-hmm. Security College. And that is, in its complexity, in its cross-cutting nature, in the way in which the boundaries between what is domestic, what is international, what is economics, what is security, what is technology, what is society, these are all becoming so blurred. It'd be great to hear a bit of how how on earth, uh, at the helm or at the, uh, the centre of mm-hmm. policy, how do you grip all of that up? How is Australia doing? Well, look, um, it's very challenging. Uh, I think I'd be, you know, be sort of misleading people if I didn't say it was very challenging. It's very challenging for all of us. You know, countries around the world are grappling with these issues in, in similar ways. And I don't think we've all collectively or, or individually worked out quite how to, how to handle them. But, but you're right. It's a very different environment. Um, you know, in a way, the simpler environment of mutually assured destruction looks at, you know, yeah. exactly. But, yeah. you know, at least that was very clear. We're now, Everything is grey. Mm. Um, in, in the Prime Minister's Department, we set up a couple of years ago a sort of a, a cross-cutting economic and security process so that colleagues working on the sort of nexus where international security and international economics or national economics mm. um, come together can, can work together to sort of make sure that we understand the different angles of the issues we are facing. But, you know, um, on your program here, you've had people like Duncan Lewis talk about the sort of huge increase in espionage and foreign interference. Um, 
countering foreign interference has been a major focus for this government, as as you know. Um, and we're dealing through with all these sort of cross-cutting challenges in sort of non-security areas like supply chains, critical minerals, critical infrastructure, mm. you know, um, foreign investment in, in, in telecommunications. And, of course, there's the vector of cyber that sort of cuts through everything, enormous focus on, on cyber security. Um, it's, it's very evident to me, talking to colleagues from across the Five Eyes and Japan and elsewhere, that they're, they're also finding this very hard to grapple with. And I'll, I'll give you an example of how much the way we operate has changed from being, as you say, very much in the international, international affairs diplomacy world. Um, last year, I led a, a delegation to Japan for our regular national security dialogue. And, and in the past, it's been a very foreign policy focused looking dialogue. And I was thinking, you know, where can we in the Prime Minister's Department really add some value? And our value is very much in our convening power, bringing all these different elements together across the system and seeing how they intersect and how we can best advise government on how to how to handle them. So instead of having a more traditional kind of defence and defect sort of delegation, uh, although they they were present with us, we took people from Treasury, uh, from their um, national security area, and also from Home Affairs dealing with countering foreign interference, so that we. Could could actually look at these cross-cutting issues and talk to our Japanese counterparts about them. They were really thrilled with this because they were just establishing their own economic security unit in the National um, Security Secretariat in, in Tokyo, which is sort of sort of equivalent to the group that I run in, in PMNC. So we had a completely different kind of discussion from one you would have had probably even five years ago. And that just gives you a sense of how much things have changed. And I think the, I mean, that that's an interesting insight for listeners and, and viewers of this uh, recording, because of course this is a live uh, podcast as, as well, a live webcast. It's uh, an interesting insight into the way in which, um, I guess, the machinery of government is operating. I mean, we hear, and you don't need to necessarily comment on this if you don't want to, but we often hear this very simplistic view that, you know, uh, foreign policy is now dominated by, quote, security hawks. It sounds to me as if there's actually a very rich conversation between the different parts of government, that you've got economic policy feeding into security policy and vice versa, and increasingly technology, social policy. And so on. Can you absolutely shed any correct. more light on that? Look, I think that, no, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, there's no doubt that we face very challenging, a very challenging mm. security environment. So. I make no apologies in my job for, for, for having a very strong national security focus. But it's absolutely the case, as you say, that all the other different elements are coming into play. So we are talking regularly with whether it's industry, communications, um, health, obviously, in the context of a pandemic, um, but a whole bunch of other, uh, other players around town that a few years ago we wouldn't have been doing in the same way. So it's very cross-cutting, and it's not all one-sided from the mm. national security perspective as well, because, you know, for example, Right now, what is the major focus of the government is to get the economy moving, its its jobs, its growth. So it's very we very much have to look at these issues in an interconnected way. Can you touch on COVID and the bushfires, if you like, the two crises that obviously hit us this year? And I guess you know COVID nineteen and the response to that is the is the rolling the rolling crisis. Can you reflect a little bit more on how how government deals with crisis as opposed to the long-term challenges and maybe how that's reflected in your part of government? 
Well, sure. Um, you know, one, one of the roles that I have is an all hazards approach to crisis management as the crises occur. And of course, as things move on, they, they get dealt with by other parts of the system. And we work very closely in that regard with Emergency Management Australia in the Department of Home Affairs. But, um, the bushfires uh, was a, you know, a very, very challenging time, obviously. Uh, and one of the things we did as a result of that was a, a sort of initiative of, of mine was to establish a cross-cutting disaster preparedness and response branch in my group bringing in people from the social policy yeah. area and all sorts of other parts of the system with a kind of a small BAU sort of nucleus that could then surge in response to crises. Well, of course, we were then confronted with an almost immediate challenge in, 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 in COVID-19 and that, that new area became the sort of nucleus of what became a very much bigger PMNC task force to support the Prime Minister at both National Cabinet and the National Security Committee of Cabinet in dealing with the crisis. Uh, so that's the way in which we can sort of add value is really using that traditional PMNC convening power consultation, uh, bringing people together to sort of crunch through the issues and deliver the best coordinated advice to government that we can. And that's um, probably a good moment for me to slightly change focus and maybe ask you a little bit more about your own role, uh, because uh, as the Deputy Secretary for National Security in, in Prime Minister and Cabinet, you, you get to see all of the issues. You, you, it sounds to me like you do a hell of a lot of wrangling of, um, of <laughs> issues as well. Um, so maybe a little bit more clarity, particularly for those who are watching this who are, who are students who are trying to understand how government works on these issues. What, what's, what do you do and what does your day look like? <laughs> well, the first thing I would say is it's completely unpredictable. So the, my diary at the beginning of the day may not look anything like the same diary at the end because left fields happen, left field things happen in the national security space all the time. Um, it's, it's, it's very much a we are very much now in a sort of a traditional central agency mm. coordinating role. And, and you'll recall a few years ago, there were big machinery of government changes with the creation of home affairs and the establishment of the, uh, the office of national intelligence. Mm. And, and our role had been a bit more expansive before then. It's now become a more traditional central agency role. So we do a lot of work with any I emerging issue to ensure that all the key players are brought together to work out, you know, how we need to proceed. Now, we, that's not to micromanage other agencies because, frankly, if an area is very much clearly in the purview of a line agency, to a large extent, as long as you're pretty sure that they're getting on with it, and they usually are, you just let them do their job. But where you have multiple um, agencies, multiple interests involved, then we would tend to step in and try and just ensure that there's a very coordinated process and that all the issues are getting a very balanced, um, you know, uh, consideration. And so how, and, and uh, maybe you could even explain for those who, who need to understand how that works with the politics of an issue, how does that work with the relationship with, the, for example, the PM, the PMO? How, how, how do you connect with the Hill, as they say? Yeah, well, look, the, 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 the central sort of part of the job, the most important part of the job by a country mile um, and it's an enormous privilege is to support the Prime Minister uh, both in his international engagements and in his role as, as Chair of the National Security Committee of Cabinet. So all our endeavour really in the Prime Minister's department, like you would for a line minister, is to thinking how can we support the Prime Minister in this role to get the best advice to him in order for him to take decisions and with his Cabinet colleagues. So that's that's sort of overriding focus of, of our role in that respect. So 
that's um, that, that, that sort of reminds me that a lot of these uh, a lot of this architecture, if you like, of policy making, it evolves over time. It's evolved before it will evolve again. Um, and I think it was may have been Duncan Lewis when he was on this mm-hmm. program was you know reflecting on the idea of whether in fact there should be a designated national mm-hmm. security advisor with a capital N, a capital S, and a capital A. Um, whether there should be a national security strategy or statement by government to pull together uh, a lot of what we're already doing. I'm wondering if you can share any thoughts on either of those um, those ideas? Well, look, clearly it's a matter for government, um, so I'd be a little bit careful. Uh, but look, just perhaps if I sort of outlined a few considerations that, that I think any, any mm. government would need to look at or would want to take into account. Uh, with respect to a national security advisor, of course, uh, when Duncan was in that role, which he did superbly well, it was a different era with a different architecture in the national security space. So um, it was before the creation of Home Affairs uh, and it was before the creation of the Office of National Intelligence, which brings together an enterprise approach mm-hmm. to the intelligence community. And Home Affairs, of course, is a mega department with many sort of uh, agencies attached to it. So um, I think you'd be, you'd be any national security advisor would be operating in a more contested space, a more crowded space. So I think it, that, you know you'd have to look at what would be the role of, of that position in today's environment, what would its value add be, and how could it go about it in a meaningful way. So I think it's not to say you couldn't do it, but I think those you'd have to look at it through a very contemporary lens and see where the value add would be. Uh, in terms of a, a national security strategy, um, of course, we've had them in the past in 2008 and 2013. Um, what I would say is, is this. I mean, in the last, because of the contested environment which we're in, in the last, um, you know, four years, we've had a, a 2016 defence white paper. We've had a 2017 foreign policy mm-hmm. white paper. And this year, we've had the defence strategic mm-hmm. update, all of which have set out very clearly the challenges facing Australia and how we're going to tackle yeah, them. And so- Cyber strategies and all the rest of it. Cyber security strategy, all of that. Also, a a raft of government reforms in the national security space, encountering foreign interference in telecommunications, um, you know, in in, in a whole raft of areas, um, security of critical infrastructure, and, and of course, there's uh, some further reforms to that being progressed through the parliament now. So there's been a whole range of this legislation, a whole raft of white papers and policy updates. So, again, where you need to look at where your space was, what would be the right time to do something of that kind. There could be value in it, standing back, wrapping the whole thing up, but you'd have to look at when and how would be the right moment to do that, I think. Sounds to me that a lot of the elements are there, uh, you yes. know, because if we, if we, all those documents, all those changes to the way government does its business, a case could be made that the elements are largely in place and you really need some sort of frame or chapeau but as you say it's, it's, it's timing it's it's yeah. timing and it's, yeah. it's it's what you know any government decides to do at the time yeah and this is a good opportunity to take a quick break on the national security podcast and we'll be back soon with more from rory medcalf and caroline miller on securing australia in an age of disruption tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. 
Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So what I'll do in the time remaining, I want to, uh, I do want to move back a bit to career issues, particularly for people starting out in careers in policy or in national mm-hmm. security, uh, particularly for women, but not only for, for women. I want to come to that towards the end, if that's mm-hmm. all right. A couple more uh, other themes I want to touch on, I think, and you've already alluded to some of this, uh, including in describing the, the daily challenges of your job. Um, what 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 are some of the parameters for success in national security policy making? I wonder if you can either answer that now or think about that for a moment as we work through a few other things. I'm just interested to understand a bit more. You know, what does success look like, and then perhaps a little uh, a reflection on who who does policy well around the world. Um, What's the value of understanding history in making national security policy? <laughs> These are all big, challenging and questions. And then we'll go to the personal already. stuff. So, look, yeah. pick from that little yeah. smorgasbord first, if, you, if you'd like. Look, what does success look like? Um, partly it's an absence of failure, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we've, for example, if you look at the sort of counter-terrorism work, mm. um, after the challenges that we spoke about during that post-9-11 decade, and then as we went through the sort of, you know, the early teens, if you like, um, with, with the rise of, of mm. ISIS and al-Qaeda, um, Massive effort went into this, into counterterrorism work. Agencies pivoted towards that for, for a long time. Um, uh, you know, enormous amounts of, of, of funding, um, and huge, and, and, and we had in the, you know, since 2014, um, seven terrorist attacks, but, 18 major CT disruption. Mm. So I think it's it's putting that focus of effort mm. to get to, to pre- often it's preventive. Mm. Um, that you know that preventing something is success, yeah. and often those things don't the preventions aren't the things that are in the newspapers. Yeah. Um, d- ditto with cyber. Yeah. You know, um, the prime minister, for example, called out uh, you know a cyber attack by by a sophisticated state actor in June. Mm. Um, the the things that are disrupted that are not successful mm. that they go on all the time as well. Mm. Um, that is success. Mm. Um, the the um, security of the Australian community is success. The ability of the Australian community to prosper is success. Uh, and national security underpins a lot of that. And I guess it's just one of those um, characteristics of the job that, not, that the officials don't necessarily get to celebrate these successes <laughs> in, the, in, in the public eye. Look, thanks for that. What about um, those other two thoughts? Uh, you know, where do you see security policy being done well? And I think this is also partly, I, I know that Australia's been on a journey in recent years. I get the impression that a number of other countries look to Australia. I know also that, you know, we should sometimes be careful about holding ourselves up as the paragon of virtue and success. But really, um, how does Australia fare in the the league uh, of countries around the world who are grappling with these new cross-cutting issues? Um, how are we tracking and maybe where, where can we also look to, um, to continue to improve? Well, look, I think we're tracking reasonably well. Um, uh, certainly from my perspective, when I've been wanting to talk to counterparts and we talk to Five Eyes counterparts in Japan and others, it's it, uh, often I've been thinking, oh, look, they must be doing something mm. and I'll get some amazing insight. Magic formula. Magic yeah. formula. And in fact, what happens is it's very much a two-way street to sharing information and everyone is grappling with stuff mm. that is really hard to do. Um, there are areas where you'll, you'll find, you know, some colleagues in, in, in another country are actually a bit ahead of you, other things where they're desperate to learn from you because it's clear that you're ahead of them. Yeah. But I think overall Australia has been... Pr- 
has been proactive, it's been driving. Uh, I think some of those big machinery of government changes I spoke about earlier have actually been a great assistance in that respect. Um, and and I think we, we've got quite a lot to be to be proud of, but it's a journey that we've really only recently embarked on mm. and it's going to be with us for this, this current environment, it's going to be with us for the long haul, I think. Mm, it's a bit, a little bit foreboding. Um, there's been a lot of dialogue this year and that's, mm. I guess, again, if I'm looking for a very small silver lining to what is a really difficult time, uh, I'm struck by the number of times you see that it's either the PM or ministers or officials are having all sorts of dialogue, mm. often virtually, with counterparts all over the world. That's true. Almost right. seems to be more dialogue now mm. than in a non-COVID year. I'm just wondering, wondering if you can reflect on the proliferation or the value or the creativity and diversity of the dialogues we're having now, uh, whether it's bilaterals or the Quad or others, mm. and how those are either helping Australia in its security processes or perhaps helping Australia to uh, to tell its story. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a very good point. I mean, I think the Prime Minister talked about networks of, of aligned countries and so on, and and uh, I think that's that's never been more important for a yeah. country like Australia. Um and you're absolutely right. I mean, we sort of totted up, you know, for example, in in my group, the number of bilateral leader level calls the prime minister has made. And it's an enormous number. And also plurilateral and multilateral events virtually. So the lack of time taken to travel, particularly from a country like Australia, where it's a major undertaking, 48 hours basically travel time there and back to many places, um, means, in fact, there's been probably more time freed up in an otherwise very torrid year mm. for those interactions uh, and allowed all sorts of groupings that you might not have expected us to be necessarily part of. But because we've been, we have done very well, for example, with COVID and we've had some other, other areas in which we've been very successful in the national security space, that countries want to talk to us. Mm. And that's been much, made much easier for a country from the Southern Hemisphere with countries from the Northern Hemisphere when you can do it virtually. So we've had video conferences, we've had secure video conferences, telephone calls, etc. And that's also been reflected at the senior officials level. Yeah. So it's been, it's been actually in, in, a, in a way quite a productive time. Now, of course, what you do miss is the body language, the chat in the margins, yeah. uh, those little asides that sort of help inform you know, the way you think about these challenges. But uh, it has been actually surprisingly productive and, and active uh, in terms of just bilateral interactions, including from the Prime Minister. And I guess it means that, uh, you know, the day goes for 24 hours sometimes. <laughs> but, um, those relationships, though, are sort of trust mm. and so forth, you need mm. to have ideally develop those Previously, it's pretty it helps. Hard it helps a great deal, but 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 it's it not always. I mean, we've. I think it's fair to say that in the last sort of six months or so, um, that 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 both at the ministerial level and the senior mm. officials level, people have also forged some new relationships um, virtually. Mm. So before we um, move to the uh, sort of the uh, the personal story, which I'd really like to end on, um, I want to talk a little bit about history, and that is. I mean, because so I think you, you know, you mentioned separately that uh, you, you were a student of history and um, I think like a lot of policymakers have a certain, you know, respect for the historical sensibility, if you like. Um, any further observations on how, I guess, understanding history can help frame policy? And I also want to go in particular to the era in which you, you began your career, which many would now see as history, but of course <laughs> history is never over. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of those issues like non-proliferation and so on are yeah. still with us. Uh, nuclear weapons haven't gone away, for example. So I just wondered if you had any, any thoughts on that, that long view. 
Well, I do think it helps if you've got a sense of where you've come from. That's not just yesterday. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, though, your, your point. Um, my, my, my daughter's doing international relations here, or international security, actually, here at the ANU, and uh, writes essays on the Cold War, um, which we find a bit disconcerting because she sees it history, we see it as life. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but I, I do think having that, that perspective, and particularly when things have changed so rapidly, I mean, growing up, through the Cold War, then having that sort of euphoric moment at the end when so much seemed possible, mm. followed by the, the, the sort of, you know, 9-11 decade, as I mentioned, and then moving forward to where we are today with the, the kind of regional environment that we did not foresee probably even 10 years ago in the mm. way it's developed. So I think having a sense of where you've come from uh, and th- uh, definitely helps. At the same time, you know, all ch- challenges are never the same twice. So being informed by that but not letting that determine uh, your responses, I think, is important. I guess, and busy policymakers, sometimes it's, 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 it's reading history is something you do in your spare time, I suspect. <laughs> so, look, let's go, if you don't mind, to um, a little bit about your advice for uh, people starting out in a mm. career in security. Uh, it strikes me, certainly from where I sit at the college, that a lot of the issues that we either study or analyse or discuss often in a more academic or think tank, Tank, uh, type environment, they've become very, very real. And uh, none of these security issues are purely academic anymore. At the same time, as you, as you, I think, said earlier, there's perhaps a little bit less of the optimism at the moment around that you experienced in the in the 90s and a lot of people in your, um, your cohort, if, mm-hmm. if you like, in diplomacy and policy were able to really uh, use to drive their careers and, and to maintain interest mm-hmm. uh, and motivation. So I guess I'd love to hear some thoughts of advice, uh, particularly to women starting out in a security policy career, and maybe some observations on what motivates officials these days. Mm. Well, look, I think the most important thing if you're starting out in, in any career, including in national security, is that you have to be really committed to it. You have to, mm. it has to matter to you. Um, and I think one of the things that motivates us and gets us up every day, and it's been the same for most of my career, is because I really believe what we do matters. Mm. If you don't have that feeling, I think it'd be hard to keep going, <laughs> particularly in long, challenging days. Um, of course, it was very exciting when, it's very exciting and motivating when you feel you've got something very positive to do. Mm. It's also very motivating if, if somewhat more wearing mm. when you feel you're dealing with very serious challenges. And, and right now, I think there are many serious challenges. And it is, it is very motivating to think that what we do in the national security community in Australia really matters for our long-term prosperity, sovereignty, and security. And that, that is a, that is a getting out of bed every day mm. <laughs> feeling. So I think you have to be, you, it has to be something that you actually feel strongly about yourself. So what I would say to people starting out is, um, if you're still at university, do a breadth of subjects, um, because as I've just mentioned, the threats we deal with today are going to non-traditional areas. So don't just study international relations or international security. Weave in some STEM, you know, data security, massive issues, cyber, you know, AI. Weave in some STEM, some economics. You know, geoeconomics is just is is just as important as, as, as geopolitics these days. Um, so, you know, legal issues very important, international legal issues. Broaden your degree to give yourself that breadth. The other thing I'd say is when, when you start off in a career, if you move into a, an agency that deals with international security, if you decide to go into government, um, 
be open-minded as mm. to what you might end up being interested in. Sometimes the great passion you had as, as a third-year undergraduate doesn't survive first contact with the, with the practicalities of doing it. Yeah. And other times, of course, it, it does. Mm. But be open. Um, the thing, I think, for me is learning from really good people, mm. you know, uh, so whether that's, that's, you know, brilliant lecturers at university or really inspiring senior leaders in the public sector or elsewhere um, and, and really learn from them. Some of those people are going to be tough taskmasters, mm. but I, I feel forever grateful for people that I learned from in, mm. in my career. Uh, so those are some of the things I would say. Um, for women, uh, you know, it's a very different environment now from mm. the one in which I joined, which was, I feel, was deeply misogynist. I mean, and it was, I joined just before the, uh, the 1984, um, Equal Opportunity, uh, wow. the yeah. Sexual Discrimination yeah. Act was passed. Uh, and it was quite legitimate in those mm. days to, to, for ambassadors to say they wouldn't have a woman at their post, wow. for example. Yeah. And it happened to one of my colleagues three times. Mm. Uh, but after that legislation went through, that, yeah. that was not possible. So we don't have those major yeah. obstacles. It's. I think it is still can be quite challenging, and um, I have to say, one of the things that's disappointed me slightly rising to these these mm. the, to the position I'm in now is is the the lack of there aren't as many senior women in mm. these big jobs mm. as I think all of us would have expected given the demography mm. of women going into these th- these jobs as graduates mm. back in the mid 80s in equal numbers to men. So there are still challenges. But but I would just say to all young women starting out, courage, just just go for your dreams, do what you want, and and just push through. Did you see yourself becoming this role model? For us? <laughs> I had I had no idea. I was just really interested in it. Uh, and when I first started off, um, I was posted to Hanoi in in uh, in the mid eighties, and I wasn't at all sure that I was cut out for this kind of work. And, and I can remember getting off the plane, and it was a very um, it was a very poor, miserable place in those days. Very isolated. It's not it's not the Vietnam of today, not the thriving Vietnam of today. Uh, and the moment I touched the tarmac, I just absolutely loved it from day mm. one. And every day I just loved the job um, from day one. And I think, you know, you have your ups and downs, but but overall I've, I've never looked back. That uh, sounds like it keeps you going. And I, <laughs> I just want to, as an aside, um, thank you for, I think, talking about breadth of study and breadth mm. of experience. And certainly that's part of the mission that we have at the college. And as you know, we have mm. a, uh, a really uh, a new version of our degree for next year where we're going to be looking very much at issues like geoeconomics, law, technology, uh, crisis management as some of the issues and subject areas that true national security professionals need. Yeah. Uh, well, need congratulations on that because it's exactly what's required and I give a big plug to Rory's course. <laughs> so thank you for that, uh, Caroline. Look, to, to finish up, um, still on the personal side of it, uh, as you've said, your days sound long and challenging and sometimes a bit crazy. Um, so how do you do it? How do you cope with some sort of work-life balance, how do you how do you keep going back to it? <laughs> Look, I, I think work-life balance is a bit of a myth, actually, yeah. um, for all the reasons you've just mentioned. But, look, it is very important to build in some time to enable you to function mm. uh, and some time for do things that are, that, you know, are good for yourself. Um, the first thing for me is my family. Mm. Uh, and without without them, I don't think I'd, I'd be able to do this at all uh, without their support and, and, and uh, all the lovely things we do together. Um, the other two things for me are exercise and, and classical music. Um, I think you spotted me on, on Red Hill with my dog on a few occasions. Yeah. Uh, and, and also I like to go to the gym. Um, 
one, I had a coach about a year ago that gave me some very good advice because I felt at a particular point that the day was so squeezed, I just mm. didn't know how to carve out any time at all. And it was, it was to basically, even if you can carve out little micro periods of time, that can be extremely restorative. So I have a little routine in, in the morning. I, I, I listen to the news radio and I scan through all the things that have come in overnight on, you know, all these things that are happening all over the world. Not always very edifying. Uh, and then from the moment between my house and my office in the car, I just put on some classical music on, on ABC Classic just for eight minutes. And then I come into the car park feeling quite calm and relaxed to start the, the busy day. So you just make sure they time those symphonies <laughs> or concertos so that they get exactly to coordinate with your drive. That's, what, that's it. Look, that sounds like uh, a good recipe for, uh, for for carrying on and doing what you do really in Australia's national interest. So I want to be really very upfront and thank you very much, uh, Caroline Miller, for your insights, your, um, your advice as well, and um, best wishes uh, for what comes next. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rory. And a big thanks to Caroline for coming in to record with us. You too can join the discussion by hitting us up on Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum. You can speak to me directly using at NatSecPod. You can join the Policy Forum Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod or you can give us the personal touch by dropping an email to podcast at policyforum.net. Please don't forget to drop us a rating and a review on whatever platform you pod with. We do read these reviews and comments and we genuinely care what you have to say as it helps us bring you what you want to hear. Thanks for listening to this episode. Our thoughts go out to those badly impacted by the pandemic. And for our listeners in the United States, we're all wishing you the best for a trouble-free and peaceful election. I can't believe I even have to say that. And we will be back soon with another episode of the National Security Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.